Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Matthew Mosca about his new book, From Frontier Policy to Foreign Policy, The Question of India and the Transformation of Geopolitics in Qing China. Stanford University Press published this in 2013, just a little short while ago. Now, this is a special pleasure for me because Matthew happened to be in Vancouver at the same time I was. So rather than talking over Skype, we actually had a chance to sit down in person across the table and talk about his book, over tea and water, and it was just a lot of fun um, to talk with him about this. It's a really impressive book, and I won't tell you too much about it at this point because the interview is extensive and you'll hear about it uh, soon enough. But briefly, the book actually looks at really important and substantial transformations in the way the Qing conceived of itself and conceived of its relations with others. And I'm going to use that broad term because you'll see that what constituted those others and how they were understood by the Qing is part part of the story of the book and is part of the transformation um, that Matthew is charting between about 1750 and about 1860. And those dates kind of bookend a period that spans from when Qianlong was at the height of his power to a period where the Qing was obviously weak in the face of European powers. This is a story that's not just, though, about Qing political history or intellectual history. It also has a really interesting element that's going to appeal to people who are interested in the history of data, the history of facts and the history of information. And I mean that as kind of epistemic categories, not necessarily as, you know, a quantitative analysis. What he's charting here is a change, among other things, in the Qing Empire's information order and the status of information and what that means and how that's understood by Qing scholars, Qing rulers, Qing officials is one of the things that changes over the course of the story. So it's really interesting. It's um, absolutely fascinating if you're interested at all in Qing borderland history, Qing political history, or really political history in general. And it was a great time talking with Matthew about it. So I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Matthew Mosca about his new book, From Frontier Policy to Foreign Policy, The Question of India and the Transformation of Geopolitics in Qing China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Matthew, and thank you so much for being in Vancouver today so that we can talk in person and for making the time. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. I'm very excited. Great. Well, it's nice to have you back in Vancouver. I know you started on this whole journey of being a Chinese historian here, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, years ago. So So let's talk about that a little. What brought you to the field of Qing history? How did you decide to become a Chinese historian? Yeah, that's... uh, uh, I don't know that there's a really compelling story there. I was, uh, you know, I was always interested in high school and, and as an undergraduate in reading history. And uh, I guess growing up in Vancouver with its Asia-Pacific focus, uh, uh, you know, sort of drew me a bit towards East Asia. And uh, eventually the two interests sort of merged together and I uh, decided that I wanted to study Chinese history. And... Within Chinese history, I'm not quite sure why the Qing field of all the possible fields uh, really, really grabbed me. But I think it was, you know, I've always had an interest in China's foreign relations and its relationship with the outside world. And somehow the 18th and 19th centuries seem like such a rich period when things are in transition and uh, the source materials are maybe not quite as, as fully exploited as other periods. So 
Great. So the book at hand um, charts a transformation of the attitudes towards and the technologies for understanding the world beyond the empire and the Qing. And so we'll talk about the particularities of that in much more detail. I'm going to move this. Okay, in much more detail later on. How did you come to this particular topic? Sort of what brought you to this set of issues within Qing history? Well, it was really completely by random accident, actually, because I was writing my uh, my master's uh, thesis on Qing relations, actually, with the Liocho Ryukyu Islands uh, in the 1840s. And I was using a source called the Choban Iwu Shimo, which is supposed to be a compendium compiled in the 1850s and 60s, really only having documents in it to do with Qing relations with European countries, with Russia, with England, and uh, of course, I was using that source for the uh, Liocho stuff, but I was uh, constantly stumbling upon this name Pilung, and I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. Who are these Pilung? Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound like the name of European country, but only Europeans should be dealt with in the source. And so, at the back of my mind, I uh, sort of stumbled upon this question, and I looked Pilung up in in an index for that work, and it was sort of undefined. Uh, and I thought, hmm, this is a bit of a puzzle. Who are these Pilung? And, uh, you know, one sort of pulling on the thread that unravels the sweater, I started looking into it. And, you know, some people have looked a bit at who the Pilung were and the fact that it derives from uh, from Tibetan, ultimately from Ferengi for uh, a Persian term, uh, originally from Arabic for English and other Europeans in India. And so I'm certainly not the first person uh, to discover that, but it raised for me the question... Uh, when the Qing are referring to these Pilung, do they know in the period before the Opium War that uh, the Pilung are known uh, to them on another frontier by the English? And that was sort of the the original problem posed by the book. And at first I thought, well, this is sort of a, a question of diplomatic history. You know, it, it, how we interpret Qing policy towards the English on the coast or the Pilung uh, in the Himalayas depends to a large extent on... Uh, you know, whether they saw the two groups as representing the same people or as two completely distinct groups. And so I started trying to find the smoking gun document that would either prove that they knew the two groups were connected or that they weren't connected. And uh, that drew me more and more towards the geographic side of things. How does the Qing Empire understand the outside world? What sources does it use? What are its channels of intelligence? How would I even know if they did know or not know? And so... It really grew from a very random sort of encounter in a document. That's so interesting because as we'll get to in the course of the conversation for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, that way of reconciling this terminology is actually at the focus of what happens later in the book. And it's um, it also speaks to one of the really interesting kinds of phenomena in terms of research that it seems like you were doing for the book, which is reconciling place names and reconciling the ways that the people you're talking about reconciled place names. And so in some ways, it's like toponyms all the way down, but in the most interesting way, in a way that really is like a mystery novel um, and not at all like, you know, like a dictionary. I mean, you're bringing dictionaries and lexicography to life in this really interesting way here. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think the, you know, place name seems like such a boring topic. And when I was sort of putting the book together, I really thought, well, you know, who's really interested in the etymology of these names? And yet that's, I think, so central to how the Qing, uh, both the Qing state and scholars understood the world, uh, trying to put these names together is basically uh, what a lot of Qing geography is about. And so 
you know, there is a, it brings a trajectory to the book that might not mm-hmm. otherwise be there. So. Absolutely. Now, this is a book that, um, and forgive me, listeners, we're competing a little bit with construction noise. So just, you know, it makes it more exciting that way. And we're talking about the construction of knowledge, right, and the construction of empire. And so some ways it's thematically appropriate. So let's just embrace that. Um, rumble, rumble, rumble. So uh, the book actually started out as a dissertation. Is that right? Yes, yes. So especially for listeners perhaps who are in the midst of this process themselves or are looking back fondly or not on having just been through the process or are looking forward, can you talk a little bit about what the transition from dissertation to book involved? Any major changes, transformations, surprises? How did that go for you? Well, I finished the dissertation in 2008, and uh, you know, like all dissertations, it was really written for a very limited number of people who were specialists in the field, and uh, you know, it was written in a fair amount of haste. Uh, you have to get the chapters done, and uh, I basically graduated and put it aside for a year and decided that I was going to let it mellow, uh, and I was not going to... Uh, look at it for a year, and when I came back and opened it up again, uh, one of the first things I realized was a lot of the transitions that I had included in the dissertation didn't make a lot of sense. So I would say, you know, naturally it would follow from X that Y is the case. And reading it again, you know, I thought, you know, I wrote that at like two in the morning. That doesn't doesn't follow at all from from X. And so uh, a lot of what I realized I had to do, uh, you know, I think like like anyone who's turning a dissertation into a book, one thing you have to do is uh, open it up to a wider audience, be much clearer about why you think this is important and provide more background and try to make the argument a bit more coherent and, you know, even painfully realize that some things you think are fascinating don't belong in the book and, uh, may have to be carved out. Uh, but a lot of it was, and of course you have to see what scholarships been published in the interim. Uh, but a lot of it was just taking the material and trying to rearrange it in a way that I thought, uh, made more sense to me after I had more distance on the topic. And so uh, a lot of the transition process was really just moving around chunks of text and you know, sculpting it in a different way. So the book, as we get into now the body of the book, the meat of the book, there's a motivating question that's set out in the introduction, and that really, um, I think, speaks to a lot of the transformations that we're going to see as the book Uh, proceeds to answer the aspects of these questions, or at least reposition the question in a way that opens up maybe different ways of thinking about Qing history and its relationship to geography and ways of thinking about the frontier uh, and foreign policy. So the motivating question that you set out early in the book, how did Qing rulers, scholars, and officials, and the book um, looks at these groups um, both together and also as distinct categories at different times and places in the chapters, So how did these three groups interpret the rising power of the British in India between 1750 and 1750, um, because this is when Qianlong is at the height of his power, and 1860? And this is when Qing weakness in the face of European empires had by that point become obvious. And furthermore, how did this understanding shape the policies that were proposed or implemented to maintain the empire security? So this is going to be the motivating question that the succeeding chapters are going to answer. So there's two major changes that occurred in this period. I'll just lay this out right now before we now get into the details. One is a shift in the Qing state's external relations from what you call a frontier policy to foreign policy. And this is um, part of what's reflected in the title of the book. And there's also really, really interestingly for anybody interested in 
Um, the notion of the idea of information in book history, in the circulation of text and print, there's a change in the Qing Empire's information order. And I think that's your term, the information order. And so there's a lot going on in the book that appeals to people who are interested in diplomatic history, geographic history, but also people who are interested in information history, ordering of knowledge, book history. And so this is really, I think, pitched at and succeeds, I, I imagine, in appealing to a wide range of kinds of historical readers. Okay, so now that that's laid out, before we get into um, the individual chapters, you talk at some length at the introduction um, of the book about different ways that your approach to Qing frontier history, Qing foreign policy, actually importantly differs from some um, at the point of publication prevailing trends in the field. Are there any um, examples of ways that you feel like your approach in this book differs from some major trend in Qing history um, that you feel are important and that you'd like to mention? And you don't have to talk about all of them, but you do talk about this a little bit at the beginning. I think it's really helpful for readers. I mean, there's there's been a lot of great work, of course, classic work done in the field of, of Qing foreign relations. And I guess the contribution I'm trying to make in this book is to say that a lot of previous scholarship on Qing relations with the outside world, for various reasons, hasn't really looked at the question of, you know, what did Qing scholars and rulers and officials understand the outside world to actually be? You know, how did they uh, understand the shape of the world, where other countries were, uh, how these other countries influenced Qing interests. So there wasn't really a, a geographic dimension to a lot of uh, Qing foreign relations scholarship, or at least not, I felt, enough of one. And so one of the things I've been trying to do in this book is really bring into dialogue the very rich scholarship on Qing uh, geographic worldviews, cartography, uh, textual scholarship on the outside world, together with foreign relations, and say, well... You know, how did people construct their worldview in the Qing period? What sources did they use? What problems did they come across? Uh, and, you know, you can't necessarily assume that uh, they would see the outside world as other powers did, but certainly they were very interested and very concerned with what was going on on their immediate border, but even further afield. Great. So as we get into the parts of the book, there are, I think, four parts of the book. Part one, the Qing Empire's vision of the world, looks at information about India in the first half of the Qing and the ways it was analyzed. So this is consists of one chapter that really sets the foundation and sets the stage um, on which we're going to then proceed to look at how this importantly transformed over the period that the book looks at. Now, um, I just said information about India. Now, especially for a book that focuses so much on place names and toponyms, readers might wonder, okay, so what does he mean by India? And you have in the book a very detailed explanation of this, but I, I, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk very briefly before we move on about this notion of India. What are you thinking of as India, and how does that category take shape um, for your purposes in writing the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I, I wrestled with in the book, because I think certainly in scholarship today there would be uh, a trend, of course, to say South Asia as a way of not conflating uh, you know, the region with the current Republic of India as a, as a political entity today. And one of the reasons I stuck with India is because, you know, in English or in other European languages, that's precisely the question, what is India? Where do you, you know, where you have the Indies, you have India, where does India start? Where does it end? Is this particular place within India or not? And that's certainly the case also with Chinese sources and with uh, Tibetan 
Manchu and Mongol sources, a lot of the terms they use for India are etymologically ultimately related to the uh, English and other European words for India. So that's one reason I felt comfortable using India, not South Asia. Uh, but the other reason is, I think, in both the Qing context and in the uh, Western language context, when you say India, there's a great deal of fuzziness uh, about what exactly you're indicating. And uh, I like the way that carried over uh, and reflected what's really going on uh, in the Qing sources. For the purposes of this book, I'm really interested in territories that would become part of British India, which, uh, of course, ultimately is most of the subcontinent. Uh, but for this book, primarily, I would say uh, Bengal and also uh, the Punjab are the two parts of India that get the most attention uh, in Qing sources. But other parts of India are also certainly uh, discussed uh, in Qing sources. And the other thing I'll say that sort of pushed me away from uh, South Asia is that, uh, you know, South Asia sounds like a very neutral sort of scientific way of referring to uh, this region today. But the more I was working on the book, the more I realized that for most Qing scholars uh, that I'm dealing with, to say Asia, the word Asia is, of course, a, a very European way of designating uh, parts of the world that uh, they themselves could have used, they had the word available to them, they knew what was meant by Asia, but primarily rejected. And so I felt a bit uncomfortable uh, saying South Asia instead of India. So I hope people will forgive me if they oh, think it's a mistake. I mean, I think one of the points that the book makes so effectively is um, implicitly or explicitly in different parts of the book is that there's no such thing as a neutral place name. Right. And, yeah. and so why not just take a stand and just say for the for these purposes, this is what I'm going to use um, and move on. And so I think um, one of the things that that I think that's one of the things that really transcends different subfields of history. Um, that's really useful to keep in mind. And, and this does that very effectively. You become a bit of a sort of, I don't know, place name nihilist after a while. And you realize the political baggage that comes with each name. And, right. you know, there's often a sense that, you know, this name is the right name name is the wrong name. And, you know, that may be true for a given moment, but in time, things change. It's like periodization, you know, early modern versus Renaissance versus Ming versus Qing. There's Late no, imperial, exactly. There's no objective, non-problematic way of talking. So exactly. you take a position and then yeah. leave yourself open to change as yeah. things change, Before. right? Okay, so chapter one. Um, chapter one concentrates on two major issues. So I'll, I'll lay them out and then I'll ask you to talk a little bit about them. One is the ways that geographic analysis in the period um, early in the Qing that this uh, part of the book focuses on relied on making connection between making connections between bodies of evidence that were difficult to reconcile. And you use the term incommensurability here, and, I, and I'm going to ask you about that no. in a moment. The other one, just to lay it out, is something that you call geographic agnosticism. So here are two of the main points that come up in this chapter. So can you talk a little bit about this first point? What kinds of sources um, are scholars using for geographic analysis in this early period, and um, what kinds of sources are they not using? Can you talk a little bit about the, um, this um, intellectual landscape and what's happening in geographic knowledge early in this period? Yeah, this, the first chapter was the chapter I really had the hardest time writing, uh, both in the dissertation and into the book, because it was, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a very general chapter, trying to bring out some very broad uh, broad arguments about the nature of geography as it's practiced in the Qing, not not just in regard to India. And uh, you know, one of the things I would quickly quickly came to discover as I started my research was that uh, these sources are not 
really necessarily in dialogue with each other a lot of the time uh, in the ways I would have liked. And uh, the concepts that you would run across in certain books were not reflected in other books. So, you know, if you, you have this traditional Chinese notion coming into the Qing that the world is embraced within the four C's, although what those four C's are uh, is very debatable, and you have some uh, older Chinese conceptions of the world that do have a multi-continent or uh, continent surrounded by sea, surrounded by another continent sort of framework, and then you have uh, Buddhist geography coming into it with Jambudvipa as the inhabited uh, continent that we're all on, and then ultimately you have the Jesuits coming along with their conception of uh, a five-continent world, and you also have uh, Islamic geographic sources. So you have all these sources coming together, and it's very hard for Qing scholars reading all of these sources to uh, to put them together, because in a lot of ways they aren't easily reconciled. And so I think my sense is that Qing scholars realized that all of these sources had some degree of validity, that none of them were completely fanciful or could be completely rejected out of hand, but at the same time, uh, none of them could be sort of taken as gospel and used on its own. And a lot of Qing geographic scholarship was either saying, well, you know, here is place X, and this source says this, and this source says that, and this source says this, and, you know, obviously they sort of seem to conflict with each other, but, you know, who can say which is right or which is wrong, or they might, um, you know, advance some sort of hypothesis and say, oh, you know, this this word or this place is mentioned in source A, and it sounds a bit like this other place mentioned in source B, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, maybe they're the same place. Uh, and that would sort of help the two sources fit together. Uh, but one of the things that really struck me was how diffident a lot of the Qing scholars were in making pronouncements on the outside world. And this is something you see in the written scholastic sources, but also, uh, you know, even in political memorials into the 1830s, 1840s, people saying, here's what I think, but, you know, this this whole field of research is such a vexed field of research to say that, uh, you know, this is the actual shape of the world or this place is here and that place is there because you have so many conflicting strands of information not necessarily working together. And so uh, thinking about the entire field of geographic knowledge in the Qing period as opposed to any single source uh, drew me to this concept of geographic agnosticism, the sort of underlying attitude of people even before they read any single geographic source, that, uh, you know, this source is not going to be the Holy Grail. It's not going to tell them everything they need to know. They're going to mine the source for uh, ways it fits in with other sources and then try to fit everything together uh, into a coherent picture. Now, as important as the sources that they were using are the sources that they were not using, and this is important because of a shift that we're going to see later. So you mentioned here, in contrast to prevailing geographic trends in Europe, this is mostly a text-based uh, practice, and even though they're using a wide range of kinds of texts, they're not using maps, really. Um, why is that important, and or, or is that really important here? Yeah, I think it's it's important on two levels, I would say. One is, well, let's say three levels. The first level, I think, is that, you know, maps are important in the history of, of Chinese geography. I'm certainly not anti-map or trying to write the map out of history, but uh, I think maps are so compelling as sources for historians today. I mean, if you're in a reading room and you're reading some textual geography, nobody is going to look over your shoulder unless they're 
extremely mm-hmm. interested in, in geography. But if you unroll a map on a table, you know, people will come from all over, people who don't know anything about Chinese history or Chinese and say, oh, where's this place? Where's that place? You know, the map fascinates people. And I think, you know, it's very understandable that a lot of the history of Chinese and especially Qing geography is written about maps and with maps. And I think maps have, in the literature, obtained sort of an exaggerated uh, place uh, in terms of their importance. Um, one of the problems with maps is that a map, unlike a book, is going to give you uh, sort of a single image of the world. And that works well if you think that the image that you're presenting is more or less correct or the best that you can come up with. But what you can do in textual geography that you can't really do in maps is say, you know, here, here are four testimonies about this place. Uh, they don't really fit together. They say conflicting things. And I, as the geographer, uh, can't really go that far beyond them. I can, you know, maybe give you a hypothesis of how to reconcile them. But uh, ultimately, you know, your guess is as good as mine. And so, you know, how could I map this? And so I argue in the book that for change geographers, it's really the process rather than the final outcome uh, that's more important. And uh, whereas for a lot of European geographers, even though they're using textual sources and, you know, the nice clean map they're presenting is based on conjecture and putting together a lot of sources that don't necessarily easily reconcile, they can say, you know, here's the map. You've seen my best guess. You don't need to read all the notes I took or uh, all the conjectural guesses I made in the in the context of composing this map. And I think it's sort of a larger level in intellectual history. What that does is... If you have to put everything on a map, then you have to make all your sources fit together. And if you're using a text, then you have a lot more latitude to uh, incorporate and notice and deal with conflicting sources without putting them necessarily into dialogue with each other. And that, I think, allowed uh, this attitude of geographic agnosticism to persist among Qing scholars uh, much longer than it had in Europe. Great, thank you. And there's a lot more going on in this chapter that I'm not going to ask you about because um, there are other, lots of other really interesting chapters, but I'll just mention for listeners that this is also um, a chapter in which you introduce um, something that's going to be really important as we move on to, which is the fact that even in this early period, textual research and debate really concentrated on philological questions of nomenclature, and you introduce a particular kind of method called um, yan ge here, which we're going to see later on in the book. And this is a listing in, um, as you, and I'm, I'm using your definition here, so it's almost, I think, your words, if not exactly your words, in tabular or textual form of successive names applied to particular administrative units and remarks on their changing boundaries. So this comes up at the beginning of the book. It's going to come up again at the end of the book. And so I just wanted to mention that for listeners who were like, yes, philology, finally a book that makes philology <laughs> exciting. Okay, so that's part one of the book. Part two of the book moves us into the Qianlong period. So there are three chapters that focus on, I think three chapters, that focus on Qianlong. Four chapters? Three chapters? Three chapters. No, three. <laughs> um, Qianlong. Now, this is a time of really intense military and scholarly activity and a period of unparalleled interest, as you demonstrate in the book, on the part of the emperor in synthesizing geographic knowledge. Right. So despite the fact that he has unparalleled interest in, in a 
acquiring and synthesizing geographic knowledge. And this knowledge is coming from um, a bunch of different kinds of sources. You talk about, it's really fascinating, his interest in Buddhist scholarship and how that shapes Qianlong's interest in geography. You talk about um, his interest in Chinese and Mongolian historical geography. You talk about his large pool of military intelligence that's coming in. And I mean, this is uh, expressed not just in um, explicitly geographic work um, in the period, but also in his poems. And there's this great account of his fascination with Hindustani jade and how and the poetry he writes about it. It's great, great stuff. Now, despite the fact that all of this new information is coming in, as you show in the book, perspectives on India, which of course is our kind of um, exemplary case here, and, and we'll, we'll talk about why it's an exemplary case in, uh, a little bit later on, perspectives are even more complex and fragmented than they had been. So can you talk a little bit about why that is? Like, why is it become even more fragmented and complex in this period? And, and why is this important for understanding the general argument of the book? Yeah, I mean, Chen Lung is someone who um, sort of really understood in principle, what was going on with uh, this surfeit of names for India. He realized that uh, you know, he himself knew several languages, and he realized the problems that come about when uh, different languages meet. And you know, not only did he realize it personally, but he had at his disposal all these officials who were also themselves uh, polyglot, and he was quite interested in you know, where do words come from, uh, what's the etymology of these terms, uh, where... Um, you know, how do they, what's the correct pronunciation? What would be a, a distorted pronunciation of these words? So he was very interested in sort of making sense out of the world in a way uh, that went beyond a lot of his predecessors as Qing emperors or Chinese scholars in earlier periods. Um, but his interests were somewhat idiosyncratic. So uh, naturally, as someone who had expanded the empire far to the west, his he was really drawn towards especially Tibetan sources and sources that were coming from um, coming from uh, the sort of Muslim regions that he had conquered. And one of the problems that he came across was the fact that India is being referred to as Hindustan by a lot of his informants uh, as he gets to Yarkand and Kashgar. And he has this issue of, you know, where is Hindustan? What is this place that is called Hindustan because the word Hindustan, you can find earlier Chinese uses, usages of it in some Jesuit scholarship, in some earlier Chinese Islamic scholarship, but uh, by and large, it was a fairly new term. And for Chenlong and for a lot of other Chinese and Tibetan scholars, India is par excellence the home of Buddhism. And so uh, one of the problems he came across was this idea that, uh, you know, how can you reconcile that there's this large... Muslim region called Hindustan, and there's also presumably this this Buddhist India that is some still there in some vestigial form. And uh, he devoted a lot of attention and energy to wrapping his head around this problem. Now, uh, you might say, well, if you go back to the Zhenghe voyages in the early Ming, you have uh, very clear Chinese testimonies that you know a lot of of India is now Islamic territory. Uh, and Chenlong himself, in his scholarship, really never. Uh, was in dialogue with this scholarship from the Ming uh, in terms of questions of India, and also uh, in his written scholarship really ignored Jesuit works as well. And so uh, he was very selective in terms of what he uh, wanted to look at and didn't want to look at for reasons that uh, you could sort of hypothesize about. And I think one of the reasons is his own uh, vanity as a conqueror, the fact that he had gone so far 
and yet had not really had a lot of direct political contact with India. And if you took the Ming history and Yuan history at face value, then it appeared that that Chinggis and early Ming rulers had actually had a lot of contact with India. And I think this sort of rankled him, and he thought, well, you know, if I haven't had a lot of contact with India, I'm going to write this philology that proves that these uh, earlier emperors also didn't have the contact that they claimed to have had. Um, so that's sort of one reason that, uh, despite the a massive amount of effort that Chenlong is investing in these questions, he doesn't come up with uh, answers that are able to grapple with every source available. Uh, and the other one is, of course, right at the end of his reign, when he's a very old man, he suddenly encounters India again through Tibet and comes into contact with a lot of uh, names for parts of India and India itself that Qing scholarship hadn't really grappled with up till that point. And uh, by that time, the 1790s, his great scholarly projects have wound down, and he doesn't seem to have an appetite for uh, ramping them up again to deal with India. So when you get to his death in 1799, you still have quite a few outstanding questions. I would say more than you even had had when he took the throne in the 1730s. Now, under Qianlong, not only is he producing textual knowledge, but what's also happening at the same time is this giant survey map is being produced. Now, this is a map... Um, this is really interesting, perhaps for people interested in history of cartography, among others. This is a map that was begun under Kangxi and then sort of further elaborated under Yongzheng, as you show. Can you talk about this process as it developed under Qianlong? Like, what's changing to this major mapping project under Qianlong, and why is this important to what's happening in this period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just to sort of recapitulate what had happened in earlier periods is you had Jesuits coming to China and persuading the Kangxi emperor that he wanted this uh, map of his realm being made uh, according to uh, surveying techniques that the Jesuits themselves were importing and teaching to uh, a host of Chinese scholars. And this map was, in fact, made in the 1710s, 1720s. Uh, and that's really been the, the primary focus of at least uh, Western language scholarship on Qing cartography is this this Kangxi era map, and what's been really neglected is the the Yongzheng era editions made by his son, the Yongzheng Emperor, in which he uh, commissioned maps not only of of his own empire but also of Russia, parts of Central Asia, and sort of merged them together. And uh, in a sense, what Chenlong is doing is expanding this project, taking it uh, even further, and deciding to incorporate. Um, not only Central Asia and Russia, but also India, Persia, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And a question that I found that scholars hadn't really asked that, uh, of course, was very central to my project was, well, you know, if you're sitting in Beijing and you want a map of India, how do you get a map of India? You know, what sources do you you look at? Uh, And that, uh, unfortunately, hadn't really been looked at in a lot of the existing scholarship on Qing cartography because people said, well... You know, he sent out more surveyors and, you know, the map expanded pretty straightforward. But a lot of the territory that's now being included on the Chenlong map was not surveyed. And there's no way Qing surveyors could have gotten there. And so uh, then you would say, well, you know, probably some of it was surveyed and some of it was taken from Western maps of the world that the Jesuits had, which is partly true. Uh, But then the question is, well, how do you fuse the two traditions? And uh, more importantly for... Uh, my project, what, what did scholars make of the final product? Right. You know, was this 
now that Chenlong had this massive map that he had invested all this effort in, you know, how important was this map to his worldview? And, you know, you could at one end of the spectrum say, well, you know, since he had this map made and he composed this laudatory preface, you know, this map is how Chenlong saw the world and uh, all other evidence can be sort of put aside and ignored. And uh, the other end of the spectrum and the one that I sort of come down on is to say, well, you know, it's a good map and certainly he looked at it and paid some attention to it. But, um, you know, ultimately it was just one source among many other sources. And I think that the people producing the map, both the Jesuits uh, and the Qing scholars and Chenlong himself realized how problematic the final uh, map uh, was, how many compromises had gone into its construction. And the map chapter was actually a very hard one to research because, uh, you know, ideally what you would want to do to research the origins of the map would be to see all these ad hoc field maps that the generals are sending in. Uh, unfortunately, when I was doing my research, I don't know if it's still the case now, but uh, the policy of the number one archives was they weren't going to show you the maps that were attached to memorials. So if a general sent in sort of a sketch map that he uh, had made in the field, uh, you know, you couldn't see that map. So you can't really tell what's the raw material that, that's uh, being worked upon uh, in the Qing archives to turn into this uh, map. And the other problem is a lot of the map makers didn't leave behind very detailed notes about how, you know, the thinking behind the map, what they had uh taken into consideration as they were composing it. And so a lot of it is conjectural. Uh, look at different maps and try to infer from them uh, the process uh, that went into the composition of the map. So I think more than other chapters, that's probably one that ultimately may be uh, revised by future discoveries. But uh, you know, it was a fun, fun one to write. Now, as we move into um, the fourth chapter, we move into the late 18th century. Well, we, we've been in the late 18th century, but we start looking at the British. Um, by this point at the late 18th century, the British are emerging um, as a really major force to be contended with. And a lot of this chapter um, talks about the sort of ways of reconciling different ways of talking about and knowing about the British and what um, ultimately in this chapter, but also in later chapters, what consequences that's going to have, not just in the realm of knowledge making, but explicitly in the realm of policy making. Um, so this becomes really, really interesting. So a lot of this chapter centers on an emerging Qing-Gurkha conflict and the first incursions by the Gurkhas into Tibet. Okay, so for listeners who are like, I love Chinese history, what the heck is a Gurkha? Um, can you talk a little bit about What's a Gurkha for listeners who, for whom this may not, uh, you know, even just like simple terms, what's a Gurkha? And why, um, why does this, or what kind of transformations does this occasion on the part of the, of the Qing when considering um, the importance or lack thereof and nature of Britain as a force to be contended with or not in this period? So what are the Gurkhas, who is it, what's a Gurkha? What does that have to do with anything in terms of Qing um, understandings of Britain here? Yeah, this is a question that has interesting implications. If I can sort of digress a little bit Please, before yeah, I start uh, answering, you know, one of the big sort of intellectual issues I was grappling with as I wrote this book is how does the Qing Empire fit together? You have all these parts to the empire, and how do they function as a single organism? Mm -hmm. You know, you could uh, you could think of the Qing as simply you know different cultural political units that have been conquered by the same emperor that don't have a lot to do with each other and are sort of 
doing their own thing, especially in the 18th century under the uh, benevolent or non-benevolent rule of Qianlong, depending on how you want to look at it. Or you could see something that's very tightly integrated in which all the parts are in close connection or somewhere in between. And uh, so who the Gurkhas are is an interesting question from an informational point of view uh, about what's going on in the Himalayas. Because as the Qing sort of uh, extends their rule over Tibet and comes to uh, dominate more and more uh, politics in Tibet, uh, they come to uh, contact neighbors of Tibet that, uh, that had previously not had any contact with the Qing. And the moment that this especially happened in was the 1720s, 1730s. And at that time, uh, the Kathmandu Valley was inhabited by these Nawari kingdoms that were relatively peaceful. They traded uh, with uh, Tibet. They didn't really cause a lot of trouble and didn't attract a lot of attention from Beijing, looking out over the Himalayan frontier. And in the 1760s, a lot of these kingdoms were conquered by this expanding Gorkha kingdom, which uh, eventually unified what is now Nepal today and also uh, territories further to the east and further to the west that were eventually lost. And so they formed quite a large empire uh, in the 1760s and 1770s. And this is something that Tibetan officials were quite familiar with and took very seriously as a local event. But as far as I can tell, that was something that completely failed to register in Beijing. They didn't know that uh, these Namari kingdoms that they called the Balpo kingdoms had been conquered by someone else and uh, certainly didn't realize that the Gurkhas were much more militarily formidable than uh, the people they had replaced. And eventually uh, these Gurkhas invade Tibet and uh, it's the Qing campaigns to expel them from Tibet that lead the Qing to get in contact with uh, the British governor general at Calcutta and raises at that point the, for me, $64,000 question of, you know, who, who does the Qing state take this person to be in Calcutta when they get in touch with him? And, you know, to what extent do they realize that they're dealing with a European and more specifically with an Englishman and that this Englishman uh, is connected to the English as they're known at Canton and, more specifically with the McCartney embassy that happens at exactly uh, the same time that this uh, kerfuffle is going on in the Himalayas. So, so this is actually really fascinating. And I'm going to kind of summarize this rather than asking you to talk much about it so that we can get to parts three and four of the book, which yeah. are also awesome. But what happens here is that something that we often may take for granted in a contemporary information landscape, they don't know, there are different names used in different kinds of um, sources uh, to, from talking about different areas of the world that may or may not, from the perspective of Qing officials and from people who are uh, studying this, refer to the same people. And so one of the issues that comes up here, you talk about the role of um, an individual named Fukangan, who is really, um, who's just a really fascinating, one of many fascinating individuals that emerge later in this um, second half of the book, or the, as we look at the second half of the book. He has this... Um, he has this important role in this chapter to reconcile terminology, including pilung, which you started our conversation talking about, with um, ingjili. Are they both of the English? Are they not? What's happening? So this is happening at the same time that the McCartney mission um, 
arrives. So McCartney arrives in 1793, and long, really interesting story short, McCartney becomes convinced that Fukangan is actually undermining his interests in the Qing. Um, eventually, Qianlong realizes the relationship between um, the Ingjili and Pilang and realizes that, okay, maybe they're both Europeans, they're both the English, but policies toward the Pilang in Bengal and Ingjili in Guangzhou, who we know now are like the same people, policies, even though he realizes this connection, um, still maintain uh, development in isolation from each other. So even though there's this knowledge coming in, the, there's still no cohesive policy toward the English or the British as a cohesive imperial unit. Dun, dun, dun. Where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us moving ahead to, to part three of the book, where we see... Um, stepwise kind of transformations and how um, these issues are being reconciled, which ultimately is going to lead to transformations that are really important from a frontier policy toward a foreign policy. So let's get there. All right. So now we're in um, the age of transition, 1800 to 1838. So by the early 19th century, you show here that Qing views of the world, in part because of this inability to reconcile these different forms of information coming in, different names, are seriously out of step with uh, the strategic and military concerns of its neighbors. So the British Empire became, by this point, the single most powerful force on the southern Qing frontier, but it's still not being recognized as a cohesive imperial threat by the Qing. So why... Um, Okay, so this chapter um, actually talks about in general, and then I'll just kind of uh, say a couple things about it, and then we'll move on to the next one, which really elaborates this. This chapter talks about the problem in which between 1790 and the 1830s, Qing official foreign policy actually remains unaltered by this rise of British imperial force. Um, you talk about why the Qing um, is actually letting this happen, why they're refusing a policy of strategic alliances that might help them combat this, um, and what this means um, as we understand the nature of Qing intelligence about the frontier here and how it's going to go on and change later. Okay, so we have that stage set. Let's kill off Qianlong. So let's. So Qianlong, we're going to kill Qianlong. He dies in 1799. Um, this brings us to chapter six, and this really changes the story. This is really a fulcrum point um, around which we're going to see major transformations. Qianlong's death opens the possibility, as you show, for Han literati to talk about the empire's military history, their strategies, and their external geography in print, and also importantly, outside of official bureaucratic channels. As a result, this new worldview emerges. So can you talk about that? Sort of, what are the Han literati doing after we kill off Qianlong? Um, and, and why is this so importantly different from, and how is this so importantly different from what comes before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, one of the things in, in studying this topic that really uh, loomed large for me was the significance of genre and the idea that, you know, people, when they're writing any given source that touches on India, uh, are really constrained by the field in which they're writing. And so uh, if you're an official writing an official memorial to the throne or an edict back, you're very concerned about how you're going to come across in what you're writing, uh, whether it's going to get you in trouble. Uh, and so you sculpt the information in a way that's really in your interest. And this also carries over, I think, into a lot of official Qing scholarship that's being done by large committees where you have very tight editorial standards. And, uh, and so those are fairly restricted ways of talking about the outside world. They don't allow 
the people who are writing them to really unburden all that they're thinking, all that they know, all that they'd like to say. Uh, those are genres in which you would really be quite buttoned down. And uh, one of the things that Chen Long, of course, is famous for is his his literary inquisition that he uh, launches uh, in parallel with the Sukhachenshu manuscript project in the 1770s. And especially from that time onward, I think there's a real cooling trend among Chinese literati who might have things to say about how the empire is being governed and especially about how inter-Asian territories are being governed, but might feel that what they're saying would be misconstrued as possibly a criticism of the court. And so you could really see from, I would argue, around 1760 at least through 1790, uh, a trend in which a lot of Han Chinese scholars who are reading geography uh, in China feel constrained from saying all they'd like to say. And after Chen Long's death and uh, the enthronement of his son, Jia Qing, who is much, uh, much uh, more in sympathy, I would say, in a lot of ways with Han Chinese scholars. The threat of this inquisition diminishes, uh, and people feel that uh, they can start writing essays that are much more daring, that take uh, a much more direct commentary on uh, Qing policy or developments in the outside world. And uh, it's really in this context that people are able to take channels of information that have come from all parts of the empire and try uh, not only to create a more synthesized foreign policy outlook or geographic outlook, but uh, a policy outlook that really takes into account geography and especially the rise of the British Empire. And genre, I'll, I'll just sort of um, highlight something that you just mentioned, because this is something that readers or listeners with a particular interest in bringing together literary studies or literary history with political history or social history will find a lot um, of interest in this book because the issue of genre is something that actually explicitly comes up from the introduction all the way through the end. And so this seems to be a thread that's maintained through most of the chapters that's actually really, really important. So I'm glad you actually brought that up. Um, and speaking of genre, a couple things that I'll just mention are you show in this period that scholars also, um, after we kill off Qianlong, begin to pay attention to integrating new genres into what they're doing, including European maps for the first time, or for the first significant um, time, perhaps. Um, and then they also pay increasing attention to missionary publications about foreign affairs. So this starts changing things. Now, all of this is happening um, in the background or with the background of the opium, of opium um, happening. Okay, so attention to the opium trade was really key to this transformation. Let's talk about opium. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about this issue? How and why is, is the opium trade so important? And how does this shape what's happening among these scholars? Yeah, well... It's a, it's a huge yeah. question. It's a, it's a, it's a large question. Find out whatever yeah. part of it you feel yeah. like you're most interested in talking about. Sure. I mean, one thing that uh, I think the uh, the opium trade does, first of all, draws a lot more attention to the coast. People realize that something is going on in the coast that deserves more attention than up till that point it's received. But what it sort of does is, you know, makes the British Empire look much more 3D in the sense that, uh, you know, maybe you could say that up till that point, people had seen it as sort of a flat monochrome uh entity, sort of a 2D empire that's just the English, and they come and they do their trade and they go. And uh, one thing that the opium trade does, of course, almost all of the opium that the English and others are trading on the Chinese coast is coming from India, small portion from Turkey, but mostly from India, is uh, 
you know, makes Qing scholars come to realize that uh, this political entity of whom the British seem to be the heads is a much more complicated sort of 3D entity. And in fact, uh, the British are drawing a lot of their strength from uh, Indian territories, the revenue it gives them, and also the political resources it gives them. And so you can sort of trace this uh, movement from, I would say, maybe 1810 through the 1840s, in which uh, you go from having really no conception on the coast of anything like a British India or the fact that India is subject to the British or significant uh, through into the early 1840s to an enormously exaggerated sense of, you know, basically the British are just India. And they've, you know, you have a small cadre of Englishmen who have somehow hijacked the resources of India and, you know, India is everything to them. All their trade comes from India. All their troops are coming from India. And if only we could somehow expel the British from India, then a lot of our problems would be solved. And so you can sort of see this uh, transformation taking place over time. And that, uh, you know, attention to opium and to opium trading is really at the heart of this shift. Right. So in the fourth part of the book, we really take that on um, as, as the centerpiece. And so um, part four of the book, we're, we're in the opium war, and then we're slightly after the opium war. So chapter seven, I won't actually ask you to talk too much about this, but I just want to mention this for listeners. Um, chapter seven looks at how this realization that you just mentioned, that the British... Uh, first of all, of British India as a coherent entity, and also the realization of the scope of Britain and its basis in British India really transforms how some scholars think about Qing and geographic and, and imperial practices. Now, some of these scholars are looking at this issue and um, integrating new kinds of information into the way they're thinking about the British Empire and actually coming up with um, conclusions that turn out to be not so Accurate, right? And so um, you give the example of Lin Zexu, which a lot of readers or listeners who are familiar with opium war scholarship will be familiar with this name, Lin Zexu. Um, you talk here about the way that the nature of his scholarship actually differed from previous scholars' approaches, which included um, looking at translations of English language publications and sort of newspapers and also included oral interviews. Ultimately, though, he concludes from all of this that, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about Britain as an imperial force. It's just a bunch of merchants, and so don't worry about that. Well, we know where that ended up. Um, as, as we move to the final chapter of the book, we start seeing some real, real transformations, though. So in chapter 8, we see this move concretely from frontier policy to foreign policy, and this is in the title of the book. This is the transformation that we've been building toward. Chapter 8 focuses, in looking at this transformation, on a particular figure who's really, really fascinating and who's fascinating for all kinds of reasons and really brings together so many of the threads that we've been developing or that you developed um, in the course of the book. This is an individual who's a really influential policy analysis, an analyst named Wei Yuan. So can you talk um, a little bit about him? Like, What kind of research is he doing? How is it importantly different from what's going on before, and, and what does that lead him to propose in terms of um, Qing policy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Wei is a really fascinating figure for me. He's someone who, uh, you know, really developed in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s as a statecraft thinker, somebody who's uh, really focused on the health of the Qing Empire, where it's going, how it could uh, do better, but More than that, he's a great historian. He writes this huge history of past Qing campaigns and 
He's a great geographer, uh, someone who is taking new evidence and old evidence and trying to weave it uh, together into a new picture of the outside world. And you know, more than that, he's someone who is really explicitly saying, you know, look, we need to think strategically uh, being informed by this new geography that I'm helping to uh, put forward. And so in a sense, the whole book is sort of a commentary on what Weiyuan comes to be doing. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons I feel comfortable finishing the book with Weiyuan is because he is somebody who, uh, you know, he's not a perfect geographer. He says a lot of dubious things in the book. And uh, even in his own day, he had critics. But what he does do is take all of these different names for India and other parts of the world and says, you know, look, here's how they fit together. Here's how the Tibetan names for India, the names that are used at uh, at Canton, names used by the Jesuits, names used by at Yarkhan, they all fit together. Here's how it works. And, you know, very explicitly says, I'm really the first geographer who's able to show you this picture of the world. And, you know, look how different the British threat seems to be when you look at it in global terms, as opposed to just thinking uh, about China versus Britain, you come to realize that uh, India is such an important part of this story in terms of where the British are getting their revenue, and uh, also in terms of how the chain could potentially uh, thwart them by uh, expelling them from, from their Indian possessions. And so that's sort of uh, the first manifestation of the foreign policy that I talk about in the book. And you know, his ideas are not, uh, certainly not embraced by the Qing state. Uh, and even a lot of his peers, even those we might call more progressive people who are paying a lot of attention to the outside world, uh, are also sort of shocked and surprised by some of his very bold ideas because uh, his idea for Qing foreign policy moving forward is to uh, have a lot of central alliances to ally with the Gorkhas in the Himalayas, to ally with Russia, with France, with America. He feels like all of these countries will have an interest uh, in expelling the British from India. And, and he's right in a lot of ways in that respect. Um, and so this, I think, for the first time really opens to Qing scholars the possibility of thinking about the outside world in a way I term a foreign policy, which is seeing sort of a unified global outside world with a, a single Qing empire that uh, is able to consider everything going on on each one of its frontiers as part of the, the whole story. Right. And there's a, he, there's a great quote that you have in here where, where he's proposing to use foreigners to fight foreigners. And uh, just, it's, it's just a fascinating uh, chapter to end on. So we see, we move, um, as we move to the close of the book, from this transformation where we see, in part based on the work of Wei, there's this transformation, really a revolution, you call it, in geographic knowledge, which replaces this notion of um, the boundaries of the Qing or beyond the boundaries of the Qing from discrete frontiers to fronts of a larger war. And the conclusion talks about what happens later. It talks about the establishment of the, the uh, Zongliyam in the first foreign office, and it moves us into a more um, kind of synthetic, comprehensive account of what this transformation from frontier policy to foreign policy means and how we might think about it moving forward. So Matthew, there's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't even scratch the surface of. It's an extraordinarily packed, rich book. There's so much in here. And I highly recommend to listeners that they get a copy of the book and read it because there's we just can't possibly do more than scratch the surface in an hour. Is there anything in particular that 
that we didn't have a chance to talk about that um, that you want to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Ah, that's uh, a great question. Uh, I think you know, I'll just say it was a lot of fun for me to research and write it, and I think uh, you know, it's nice to to see the finished product. Uh, but you know, I still feel like a lot of the questions that I've addressed in the book have not been uh, fully answered to my satisfaction. Uh, you know, even the question I started with of whether the Qing Empire, looking outwards at Tibet. Uh, and at, at India realized that the Pilong were the English. I feel like somewhere out there may be a smoking gun document that I did not succeed in finding. So uh, for this interview, I reread the book, and I feel, uh, I feel like there's still a lot of room for research in terms of the geography side of it, the cartography side of it, the politics side of it. So I'll just say that you know I don't by any means see this as a last word in the field. I think that uh, when I started researching the book, and would tell people that I was looking at, you know, the question of Qing views of India or Qing relations with India. Most people would say, Qing didn't have any relations with India. What are you talking <laughs> about? Uh, and so, uh, in a way, writing the book is a way of uh, trying to prove to people that this is a, a legitimate field that people should pay attention to. And I hope that uh, I can inspire some people to find things that I missed and correct my mistakes and uh, move the field further. So now that you have contributed to moving the field further, and congratulations on what's really a fabulous book, what's next for you? What is, what's currently occupying you right now? What can we look forward to in future years? Well, I think, I mean, I guess one of the, the there are a few questions in this book that I feel like, you know, for, for all its possible virtues, the book has not fully exhausted. And one of them is, you know, how is information moving across uh, not only the Qing Empire, but the entire Eurasian continent. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how is it becoming a more and more integrated uh, information order or field of information movement? And I'll say, of course, information order comes from Christopher Bailey, not something that I uh, invented myself. And Hilda de Weert has also used it in, in a Chinese context. So I won't take any credit for, for using that. But, you know, what is the, the information order of Eurasia? That's one question that's always interested me. And the other one is... You know, what's going on in the Qing Empire between the 18th century and the 19th century? And, you know, what's the changing internal dynamic of the empire? And so uh, the project I've sort of started to work a bit on is uh, how is the history of the Mongol Empire in the, uh, in the time of Chinggis and his successors being understood uh, in the 18th century and 19th century within the Qing Empire? And... Uh, dialogues between Qing scholars and European scholars. And so uh, you have almost this sort of Republic of Letters type uh, context in which, uh, you know, Mongolian sources are being translated into Chinese or into Manchu uh, or into French and being circulated. And all these people who uh, in many cases would never meet each other are in dialogue because, you know, the Mongol conquests were so expansive that this is a, a historical question that's you know, if not central, certainly prominent in a lot of historiographies across Eurasia. And so, you know, how did they fit together? Uh, what was going on? So that's sort of roughly what I'm working on. And I already, just from hearing that, no, we have a lot 
to talk about in the future. So uh, let's um, bring this conversation to a close and look forward to many more conversations about Mongols and translation, which I'm sure are going to follow in, in uh, future months and years. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a really enjoyable uh, conversation. For me too. And congratulations on the book. Thank I'll you. look forward thank to talking you. about the next one. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.